Matthew 12, 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Signs. We see them on a regular basis, don't we? We see signs, and what, what are we might wonder, what are signs for? We know the answer. They give us information. They give us information about something that has been, or something that's coming, or something that's present. Uh, if you've been any number of places, historical associations, they set up signs. Why? So you can read it, and you can know that this significant thing happened here at this time in the past because it might be important to a culture or a country and their history, how they were formed, how they've, come, how they've come to be. Advertisers hired by companies, they put out signs, whether physical on the side of the road or whatever screen you're looking at along the side or in between chunks of the show you're watching, they put things there to let you know some new product is arriving soon. Construction workers, much to our chagrin, put up signs, we're thankful for them, but it seems like construction season is long. They put up signs to let you know what? That there's construction going on and that you should drive or walk accordingly. And there's other signs that we receive that aren't just those physical signs or what have you, there's, there's pain. Pain can be a sign of something, it's a sign of something not being right within the body. Something not right within the body and an alert for you to seek out attention to help figure it out. Uh, the cry of a child can be a sign. A sign of being sick, of being tired, of being hungry, of being hurt. Some combination of those or perhaps just a fit. And mom tends to know the difference pretty quickly. Dad's a little slower a lot of times to catch on. But they're important to us, aren't they? And they're extremely helpful. In the text before us, Today, when the scribes and the Pharisees, they asked for a sign, they were asking him to do what we usually think of as a miracle. Uh, and it's interesting that the word miracle, while being a word that comes into our English translations of the Bible from time to time, uh, miracle isn't a Greek word, and it's not present in the original manuscripts. There's no single word for miracle, actually, in the New Testament. Rather, there's three words that are used to describe various events. And it's possible from those three words to infer the concept of a miracle from these words. And those words come to us in English as wonder, power, and perhaps most commonly, sign. John uses the word sign very often in his gospel. And it's the word used here by Matthew as well. They were seeking for a sign. And Jesus gives them one. We have yet to come to Jesus' first clearly stated prediction of his death, which he speaks to his disciples. But here, as he tells the scribes and the Pharisees of the sign they will receive, he's speaking of his coming death and his resurrection. He's speaking of the greatest sign that has ever been and will be until the day of his return. 
The issue of signs, though, can bring up a lot of thoughts, a lot of concerns. And the question before us is, are we content with the signs that God has provided for us? Because we look at this and we might think, oh, those ridiculous scribes and Pharisees, they've seen so much that we've read so far in Matthew, and now they're asking for another sign? How sick can you get? But if we step back from our snap judgments, sometimes we look in a mirror or in the mirror and see the same thing from ourselves, don't we? God, if you just give me a sign. And Jesus, he responds. He responds. We're going to look at that this morning. But what becomes clear with Jesus' response to them is that the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they clearly weren't content with God's provision. And Jesus declared to them what that discontent revealed about them. And perhaps the question that stares us in the face today is, is, can the same be said of us? Because it's the same sign, that sign of the death and the resurrection that gives us hope through which the gospel is communicated. And so when we come into this, we see them say, we see these scribes and Pharisees, they answer him and they say, because there's this dialogue that's been taking place, they answer him and they say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Excuse me? They'd just seen miracles in verse 9 through 14 about a man with a withered hand. Remember, he stretched out his hand. Jesus said, stretch out your hand. And as he stretched out his hand, what happened? He was made whole. He had the power just to say, stretch out your hand, and it was healed. He didn't actually touch him. He was healed. Then in verse 22, this demon-oppressed man who was blind and who was mute was brought to him. He says, he healed him. I mean, they've seen these things. Not to mention they've probably seen or at least heard about what he's done so far. How he's, how he's cleansed lepers, made the blind see, made the mute speak. Matthew tells us that some of the scribes and the Pharisees, you need to make note of that, some of the scribes and the Pharisees make this request. Because there were some who knew he was a messenger sent from God. Nicodemus says so in John chapter 3. We know you're a messenger sent from God because no one could do the things that, that you do unless God is with them. I think it's interesting and it's ironic also that the, the scribes and Pharisees, they just said, what? Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, but what have they just gotten done declaring? In the text, they've just gotten done declaring that he works by the power of Satan. And so they want a sign by this one who they've said works by the power of Satan to cast out demons. Did that power that they attributed it to not extend to other miraculous works? It just seems ironic that they would ask for another sign. Because they weren't lacking. They weren't lacking for works to prove that he was from heaven, from God's authorized messenger. Because he, he's later on going to say, if you don't believe my words, look at the works that I've done. They bear witness to me. Likely, possibly, they're asking to see a bigger sign than Jesus had yet done. But by this time, by this point, Jesus has already raised a dead girl. What more could they want? Because not everybody walks around raising the dead. Their eyes had been described by Solomon so many years before in Ecclesiastes. Because he wrote, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. They'd seen all these things. They'd heard all these things, and they're saying what? Give me another one. And after he gave it, if he would have given them that one, what would they say then? Give me another one. And after he did that one, what would they say again? 
Give me another one and another one and another one. The eye wasn't satisfied with seeing. Ultimately, the answer to why they resist Jesus and his miracles is that nothing will satisfy them, which Jesus has already declared. He said that in chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. When he says, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he's got a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking. They say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. He says, nothing's good enough for you. You won't believe anything. Well, there's also the reality that the Pharisees, what do they want? They might be saying, we want indisputable proof, Jesus. And we want you to provide it at our word, at our command. So Jesus works, if you would do something that, something just so big, then, then we would know that your works come from God himself. But according to whose decree do they want him to work? Their own. As long as they refuse the testimony of the Spirit, as long as they close their eyes, they'll never see a sufficient sign. Jesus is not the sign they seek. They don't want to see. This is, this is the point in another place in, in Luke 16, 19 through 31. Jesus has this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. That's kind of the point of that parable. Because the rich man dies and he goes to Hades and he sees Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham and he says... I'm down here in torment. If you would just send Lazarus to my brothers so they don't have it, that would be what? A sign. What's the reply? The reply is, even if someone would come from the dead, they wouldn't believe. They have the words of Moses. Let them read them and believe. He told them. I mean, the funny part about this, we're, we're, we're getting to be halfway through Matthew, and they're saying, give us a sign. And Jesus had already told them from the outset of his ministry, and as it's recorded in the Gospel of John, what the sign was. In John 2, he performs what's called the first cleansing of the temple. And they come to him. And they say, hey, tell us by what authority you do this. And Jesus responds to them in John chapter 2, 18 through 21. So what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're, they're obsessed with signs, aren't they? Later on, Paul will talk about how obsessed they are with signs, even after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. You say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So he's told them from the beginning what the sign is that they'll be given. Almost like he knew they were going to reject every sign that was put before them, all the words that were declared. So they, they, they asked for this sign. And Jesus' response, we wish to see a sign from you. He answered them, in evil or wicked an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Ouch. Jesus, that's not very nice. You just called them evil or wicked and adulterous. Well, the evil part, we know they're opposed to, but adultery, how does that fit into here? And adultery, what we have to understand within Scripture, spirit, adultery oftentimes, physical adultery is indicative of spiritual adultery. They're unfaithful. Who are they supposed to be listening to? They're supposed to be the experts in the Word. God's revealed word that only the Jews had. And what do they not understand? What do they not recognize? They reject it. They don't, hear, they don't see that the promise is being kept before them. 
Because why? They're spiritually unfaithful. And while their request was presented as a question, it was a cloaked demand for Jesus to prove himself. Jesus declares them to be evil and unfaithful. That's interesting that as they make this request, who do they sound like? Jesus has already called them just previously a brood of vipers. They sound like Satan. Do you hear the echo of what they're calling for, what they're asking for? They're echoing Satan and the words in Matthew 4, 6, and 7. As Jesus went out in the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan, one of the things that Satan puts before him is, is do this wonderful sign, and the sign involved him throwing himself off the temple. Because he'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up. And Jesus said to him, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, what are they doing? Jesus, just do this work. Well, they're putting the Lord their God to the test, so they don't recognize him as that. But like Satan, they tempt Jesus to perform spectacular signs and avoid the cross. We see that later on as we walk through Matthew. Like Satan, we already know that they're plotting for his destruction, to destroy him. They're full of greed and wickedness, Luke tells us, and it controls them. Matthew, later on in chapter 23, 15, they're identified as sons of hell. They would persist in this direction. They would persist in this direction all the way to the end because as he hung on the cross, what do they do? They demand a sign. If you're the son of God, what? What was the sign they demanded in that moment? Come down and we will believe in you. They persisted in that direction to the end, demanding that sign while he hung on the cross, atoning for the sins of men. And while he said, they mocked and they said, do this. And we, just from the evidence before us, they wouldn't believe. And he says what? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And this starts to get a little, I mean, when we start to investigate this and we start to push into it a little bit, it gets uncomfortable because we have a saying, we have an expression, don't we? Seeing is believing. Is it? If there was ever a group of people who stand as proof that seeing is not believing, the religious leaders of Israel would be it. Because again, what have they seen? Lame men walking, deaf men hearing, mute men speaking, blind men seeing. A dead girl raised. Before their eyes are heard reports of it, and that's what you there. And in Matthew 24, 24, well, even before we get to that, we're warned about signs deceiving regularly in the Bible. We know that there's men in the Bible, there's an entire nation in the Bible that saw some of the most amazing things that were ever done and yet they get into the wilderness just a few days, and what do they forget? That this is the God who rained judgment down on the gods of Egypt, who made a path through the sea that was dry and delivered you from the most powerful army. And you get out there and it's like, we're thirsty. What will ever happen? We're going to die out here. We have no hope. We're warned, though, in the Bible consistently as well about signs that deceive. Jesus has already given us the most dire one, hasn't he? 
If we flip back to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, as Jesus gets to the end of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They had been deceived. These people, what did they claim to know? Jesus. And their appeal is an intimately personal, the repetition, Lord, Lord. These people claiming to know Jesus, well, were self-deceived about the relationship they had with Christ, at least partly because of the mighty works, prophecy, exorcism, and more that they had done in his name. And what they had appealed to is, we surely know him because we've done these signs. And Jesus' response to them was what? Depart from me. Oh, that we wouldn't be self-deceived and appeal to things we've done, that we would keep, as we confess Christ, our only appeal to him, to his death and his resurrection, to his atonement, to him being our life. In Matthew 24, 24, Jesus warns his disciples as he prepares to depart He warns his disciples of those who would come, those who were false Christs and false prophets. They would arise, and what would they do? They would perform great signs and wonders to what intent? To lead astray, if possible, even the elect. What does that tell you about the capability capability of our eyes left to themselves? We have to have ears and eyes. Because God does still do wonderful things. But we also know the enemy likes to do wonderful things to deceive us. And he knows how easy we are to lead astray. That's why we ask for eyes that see. That's why we ask for ears that hear. Because we we know that it's only by his provision and his protection and his presence that we're defended from eyes that would lead us astray, ears that would start to tickle. And we have to remember, why did the fall come about? Because because man wouldn't trust what? The Word of God. Do not eat from this tree, for in the day you eat of it, you will die. But then this serpent comes along and sings this enticing song. They're enticed by deceitful words and by what? Oh, the fruit's so pretty. Looks good to eat. And here we are. So it's not new. But God, even in the midst of that, promised one who would come who would crush the head of the serpent, who would be bruised in the process himself. He's the one who's speaking in our text this morning. We're talking about that sign that would come. He's the fulfillment of it. Genesis 3.15 is coming about before your eyes, scribes and Pharisees. And what do you do? You're demanding another sign. Because the thing about it is demanding of God more than what he has chosen to give or reveal, it's a sin. And we have to recognize that. 
that God graciously gives a sign. We can point to a number of places in Scripture where God gave a sign, right? Gideon and the fleece. A lot of times we like to appeal to that. Well, the thing is, Gideon put out a fleece. How many times should he have, if you know, grant the fleece, how many times should the fleece have been set out to prove to him that it was God? Once. But Gideon says, man, that was really cool, God. You like kept everything dry all around it. You made it wet. Now, can you flip-flop that? That's not an example necessarily for us to, to, to imitate. That God worked that way is revealing of his mercy. And probably all of us can point to times where we've done the very same thing. Hey, God, if you want me to do this, if you could make the wind blow, maybe we don't do that here because the wind blows, but there are places where people would say, if you could make the wind blow and make the flag go this way, or if you could switch the direction of the flag and make it go that way, then I'll know for sure that this is what you want me to do and that you're here. Why? God says we can ask him for wisdom and discernment. Why not just ask him for, God, I'm not sure what decision to make here. Can you give me the wisdom and discernment to follow the right direction, to go the right path? Because it's not that we're supposed to not ask for things from God, but we're talking about demanding signs. These are very different things we're talking about here. The God graciously gives a sign occasionally in the Bible doesn't mean he approves his men demanding or ask, demanding for a sign. We never have the right to demand that God prove himself to us. That he has when we have sinned in this way is more evidence of his grace and his mercy towards us. Because he is abundant in grace and mercy. And if you wonder, it's really interesting. How many times in scripture does God tell someone to ask for a sign from him? Once, one time in Isaiah 7, it's one that we read around Christmas time. The, the prelude to it, because at Christmas time, we read this wonderful promise about Emmanuel, right? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. That's who's in the text we're going to say. But just before that, in Isaiah 7, chapter 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. He's the king. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So what did God say? Ask for a sign, Ahaz. Now how many of you, if God said, hey, ask for a sign, would, would go, I don't know. Well, God tells Ahaz, ask for a sign. Ahaz says, I will not, can you hear his religiosity here? I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Okay, on one hand, what's he doing? He's saying, Scripture says to not put the Lord your God to the test. But what has God said to Ahaz? Ask for a sign. So if the one who said, don't put the Lord your God to the test, is the one who says to Ahaz, ask for a sign, who has the right and the authority to say, we're going we're gonna to hold this right here for this one time. It's like when you come to, if you ever come to a four-way stop and there's police at the intersection and, and it's just blinking red, but the policeman who's there, he says what? He flags you through, right? Who do you listen, who are you supposed to listen to? The flashing light or the police that's there to flag you through the intersection? The officer that's there. Because he's there because there's maybe something wrong with his life. So he's flagging you through. 
God, when he says this, he comes to Ahaz and he says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. He's saying, ask for whatever you want, Ahaz. Ask for the sign and I will give it. Ahaz says, no, I am more religious than that. And God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little? Listen to what he says about his response. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that's who we hear right here. Emmanuel, who speaks of the one who the sign of Jonah is going to be what's going to be given. So once in Scripture, God tells someone to ask for a sign. Interestingly enough, the man who's involved says no. Once in Scripture, God tells his people to put him to the test. Once. Anybody want to take a guess? It's in Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. And do you know what it involves? It gets uncomfortable. It involves giving. Because the Israelites hadn't been giving the full measure of the tithe that they'd been commanded to by God's word. Malachi 3, 10 through 12, he says, you burden me because you don't bring the full tithe in. He says, here's the deal. You put me to the test in this. Bring the full tithe in. I will provide everything. Well, guess what the people's response was there when God said, put me to the test in this. They said, nah, we'll pass. They end up in exile in Babylon. Not just because of the not tithing. Because it was indicative of everything else in which they'd turned away from him, neglected him, abandoned him. Once. The wonderful thing about Scripture, though, is, is while God, he's merciful and he's gracious, and there's times that he's given these signs when, when people have demanded them, what we are told in Scripture to do is to humble ourselves before him, to pray without ceasing, to bring everything to him in prayer. God, you're present. You've given us everything, and everything is yours, and we... We want to use what you've given, all of it, for your glory. And I need from you wisdom. So God, I don't have wisdom for this. Will you give me wisdom? James tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask and the Lord will give it. Later on, James says, you, you don't have because you don't ask, but then when you do ask, you ask to use it on your own desire. Lord, examine my heart. Let me ask in a way that I want to use what you've given for your glory. I need wisdom. We know those who are hurt. We've prayed for them today already. We pray for healing. We don't get to demand that they're healed, but we say, Lord, heal them. We desire for them to be healed spiritually and physically. He's already taught his disciples, give us this day our what? Daily bread. I don't demand my daily bread from God. Give us this day our daily bread, please. Give me my daily make, make me faithful. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, but I'm not sure what my next step is. Can you give me a little more light? So we're called to go to him, to cry out to him, to call out. And when he gives what it is, what are we to be? Content. We are to be content with what God reveals and provides and trust that he has revealed and will provide everything that's necessary in his perfect timing. 
We see it with Paul and his, and his thorn in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. Three times I pleaded with God that he would deliver me from this. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. I will be content in my weakness, for when I am weak, then I am strong, and he is glorified. Paul and his imprisonment, as he writes to the Philippians. The Philippians, they're concerned. Man, Paul's in prison. What's going to happen with the message? What's going to happen to Paul? And Paul says, hey, guys. Don't worry about this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard that to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And then later on, as he's continuing to engage the Philippians and encourage them, he says, I received what you sent. He says, but I rejoice in the concern. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Whether I'm in abundance or in need, I am content. I know you're here. And I know you will work. Paul, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 14. The wonder of what he confesses about the Trinitarian God, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the opening of his letter to Timothy, after the greeting, he says about God, he has saved us and called us to a holy calling because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. So at the end of his life, he's content in God the Father. He's content in God the Son, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel and has given me life and made me an apostle of it. He's content in the Holy Spirit who he says dwells within. So where is God? He's here. He's present. He's with me. And I am at the end of my life being poured out as a drink offering and there's nowhere else I'd rather be. Not because it's comfortable, not because it's the best experience of my life, but because this is where he's placed me. He's present. He is good. His will will be done. I don't need any other signs. In fact, he says at the end of the letter, do you remember what he says? Bring the parchments. Bring the word. It's my comfort. It's in that that I'm content. But Jesus, again, we, 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 we come back to, the, to our text before us. Jesus tells him, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. The sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sign. The sign of Jonah, three days and three nights, we have to recognize is according to the Jewish reckoning of time. Okay? Any portion of a day counts as a day in the Jewish reckoning of time. He was crucified and buried on Friday. He was in the earth the whole day on Saturday. He was resurrected early on Sunday. According to the Jewish reckoning of time, that is three days and three nights. So we know that it's been fulfilled. But it's interesting, the sign of Jonah. Because he did not have to give what to this wicked and adulterous generation? A sign. And yet he says, even to this wicked and adulterous generation, no sign will be given to it except, so there will be what? A sign. And that sign is given because it's not the will of God that any would what? Perish. 
He wants to get their attention. He's been doing this throughout Matthew chapter 12, continuing to bear witness to those who are so opposed to him, the sign of Jonah. It is abundantly merciful that in spite of the scribes and Pharisees' dogged unbelief and rejection of Christ, he tells them that they will be given a sign. It also is interesting to note that Jesus didn't believe that Jonah was some myth or morality tale that was intended to tell people to be good, do what God says, or he'll throw you to the fishes. That's not what it was about. It's clear that Jesus recognized that Jonah was a real historical person who was sent to real historical people, the Ninevites, who were in real and terrible danger. And what we have to remember about Jonah is that the fish wasn't an instrument of punishment. The fish was God's instrument of what? Deliverance. As Jonah sinks down in the sea, what comes? The fish. To do what? Preserve him and deliver him. Jonah would be three days and three nights in the fish. The sign of Jonah. Three days and three nights in the fish, and then he spit out on dry land. Okay? Jesus, three days, three nights in the earth, and he would walk out of the grave. So we look at this. Well, what Jonah? Jonah was tossed overboard. Why was he tossed overboard? So the sailors would be saved. Yes, to take the message to Nineveh. But in the immediate, why is he thrown overboard immediately so the sailors would be saved? And Jonah comes out with a message to proclaim to God's declared recipients, the Ninevites. Jesus would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, thrown into the depths of the earth, if you will, for what? For the redemption and salvation of men. And he would walk out with a message to proclaim to God's declared recipients, which are who? Go ye therefore into all the world to do what? To baptize and make disciples and teach them my commandments. And I'm with you always to the end of the age. He sends them out with the message of life. Three days, three nights. It's yet to come for them. It's what we look back to. But then he continues on. He says that after the sign of Jonah, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be in the earth. And then he says, this, the men of Nineveh, so those that received Jonah's message, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And then he includes the queen of the south, or we would call her the queen of Sheba. She'll rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. How sure is judgment? Jesus makes this clear. Repetition. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment. The queen of Sheba will rise up in judgment. He's saying there is a judgment. It's very real. But there's also an echo here of what Jesus has already said. In, in Matthew 11, 20 through 24, remember he was speaking to these three cities, to Chorazin, to Bethsaida, and to Capernaum. If the things that had been done in you had been done in these, in these cities that were so opposed to God and enemies of his people, they would have repented. And now he says to these religious leaders, the men of Nineveh, they're going to rise up and judge you. Well, why would he say that? Well, interestingly enough, the men of Nineveh, who were they? Well, they were ungodly men, and if, and if you watch the Veggie Tales version, they slapped people with fish. That's made up, but it's entertaining. They were the worst enemies of God's people. Jonah did not want to go. The men of Nineveh were ungodly men who had never heard a word of the true God, 
yet repented at the voice of an unknown and foreign person who came to them. Well, this country, which is the sanctuary of the heavenly doctrine, who has received the revealed word of God, hears not the Son of God and the promised Redeemer. It's interesting that Jonah, when he goes to these men that Jesus says will rise up, Jonah did no signs before these people. He only came with a message of the impending judgment of God. His message wasn't easy, and it wasn't popular. He was a foreigner going to the enemy. There was nothing to ingratiate him to the people of Nineveh. He comes into the town saying, repent, because judgment's coming. They're not friends with the Jews. There's nothing to make him. You know, I established connections with them, and, and we got to be best. No, he didn't want to be best friends with them. He didn't even want to take the message, yet he comes. He didn't want to go. Why didn't he want to go? The book of Jonah tells us he knew God's merciful streak. I knew you're merciful. And he knew these people might hear and believe. And what did he do once he'd proclaimed his message? I'm going to go park it outside and wait for God to judge them because, man, they deserve it. I really don't like them. The men of Nineveh were so deeply affected by the teaching of Jonah that their minds were directed to repentance. It says even their king wore sackcloth and dust and ashes and repented, and God did what? Spared them. And Jonah, Jonah has a hissy fit outside of town because I knew you were merciful. Jesus. Jesus comes and he does do signs before the people, doesn't he? No greater signs have been seen, no more wonderful words have been heard. He came with the message of God's judgment. Remember, when he comes, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is hand. He comes with the message of God's judgment as well as God's deliverance. He comes with the good news. His message, though, it wasn't easy or popular, was it? If ever there was a foreigner going to the enemy, it was him. Well, we were sinners, enemies of God. What did Christ do? Died for us. There was nothing to ingratiate him to us. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He didn't refuse to come. He chose to come. He knew God's merciful streak. He rejoiced in it. He was God incarnate. He knew that while some would believe, many, the overwhelming majority, wouldn't believe they would reject him. While Jonah went outside of the city to await and was looking forward to judgment, he went out of the city not to await its destruction, but to endure destruction for deliverance of the people. He went to endure the just wrath of God against sin and to atone for it that we, the new Jerusalem, might be delivered and made partakers of his righteousness. The men of the world are still being so deeply affected by his teaching as to have their hearts and their minds directed to repentance. The wonder of the work of the Son of God, the ultimate prophet. And then he brings in the Queen of the South, and the Queen of the South of the Queen of Sheba, you read about her in 1 Kings 10. What did she do? She traveled a long way. To where? To, 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 the, to the Holy Land. She'd heard about this king named Solomon. And what she'd heard was so amazing, she says, i got to go on a trip. She travels. Some speculate it took maybe three months for her to travel because of the retinue that she would travel with. 
She traveled a far distance because of what she had heard about Solomon. Echoes or, or <laughs> echoes beforehand of the nations coming to him. And she comes. And as she gets there, she saw everything that was there. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. It says that she saw all the she heard, she'd seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, and there was no more breath in her. She was breathless. And this is it, Solomon, and this is before Solomon's heart turns from the Lord. This is when Solomon was obedient and faithfulness to God. And this kingdom was so opulent. Silver was like dust. Solomon's appearance was breathtaking, but it's his words that ravish her. She saw the wisdom, the house, the food, the seating of officials, attendance of a servant's clothing, cupbearers, burnt offerings. He was breathless. The report of a pagan queen regarding Solomon's kingdom when he was committed to God. The testimony to God and his goodness and his provision in all times and all places is a happy and a blessed kingdom. And she traveled to hear it. Jesus stands among them, and what are they missing? He is the king who forever sits on the throne, whose appearance is breathtaking, but it's his words that ravish because they what? They bring what no other thing can bring, what nothing else in all of creation can bring. They bring life. They're wise beyond the wisdom of all men. They're words that deliver what they require. Righteousness is in him. Life is in him. Forgiveness is in him. And what is it? You, you, you remember what they said? She said, the, the, the service of your officials, the seating of your servants. She was amazed by that, not just by Solomon, but by the servants who were his, their apparel, how they feasted. Just the wonder of a kingdom so happy and blessed. Who's the house of Christ? We are. What does our house say? We submit to the king and his word in every instance. We receive of his wisdom because he provides it forgiveness. Even when I screw up, he says, Come back to me. And he forgives. We receive of his food. What was the food? He gave of himself that we might live. He who eats of this bread will live. The seating, where have we been seated in him? He's seated at the right hand of the Father and who's with him? Right now, spiritually united with him at the right hand of the Father, looking forward to the day in which what? We receive it in its fullness. 
Our seating is in the very hall of the king. Clothing. We've been clothed in robes that are his. They can never be tarnished. That are radiant beyond anything that anyone in this world could do. Bearing the wine of life. Anyone who drinks of this will live. For there is life in it. And for the daily living sacrifice. Present yourselves as living sacrifices. Why? For the joy of what you've been given. That we would submit all things and everything to him. And what is it? It's a happy and a blessed kingdom. Now in the midst of this world, we'll have our struggles, we'll have our trials, we'll have our travails. But what, what does the world see? Do they see the foretaste and the preview of a happy and a blessed kingdom? If we would have them see it, we must ask for it and that it would be seen for his glory. Not that we might be known among men. We care not what they think about us, only that they would see your glory. That as they look here, we go, we don't get it. But there's something there. Because when I see them, it's not people I would normally put together. And yet it looks like they love each other. How can they do that? Let me tell you about our king. I don't need a miraculous sign because the sign that he's given is what he works in the hearts and the minds and the lives of those who are his. They love real love, true love. Not love like the world that says, as long as you do this, I'll love. I don't know how they do it. And if you ask them, they'd probably say, you know what, I don't know how I do either. Except for Christ. That she would rise up because what have they missed? They've missed the one who brings the fullness of the kingdom. Okay, then what about us today? What do we proclaim? What do we do? I mean, mean, time and again, people occasionally say, wouldn't it have been great to be back there and to see him do what he did? And and the apostles tell us, no, it's, it's every benefit that we live and we do. He even said, it's to your benefit I go away because the spirit will come. What do we proclaim? Because we want to proclaim this sign. When we hear people ask for a sign, we can tell them with full confidence, it has been given, it is good, and it will restore you. It will bring life. We proclaim the sign we continue to proclaim is the one that Jesus said would be their sign. It's the resurrection of Christ. He's the victor over death. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's long-form speaking to the resurrection. He puts it succinctly as he goes in Acts 17, 30-31. He's before the Areopagus in Athens, the philosophers and the highfalutin intelligent people of the day. And he's gone through all of this and he comes to the end. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The result is Dionysus and Damaris and others believed. Go, well, that's so hard to believe. Yeah, it wasn't any easier to believe then than it is now, but the truth is the truth. And we proclaim it. 
And we proclaim, yes, there is a judgment to come, but you don't have to suffer for it because someone has suffered in your place for you. So we, we, the sign we continue to proclaim is the resurrection of Christ. The sign we continue to proclaim is the word of God. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you want to see the sign of God and the power of God, open the Bible, read his word, ask for his ability, ask the spirit to give you the ability to understand and stand on it and proclaim it because it is what brings life. It bears witness to Christ. And there's also a sign that he's given us. It's the evidence of our faith. It's not the gospel, but it's evidence of the gospel's work. Because we adorn the gospel. In Titus 2, 9 and 10, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters. Who is our master? Christ. In everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Look at that happy and blessed kingdom. It's evidence of what? The glory and goodness of the King. No greater sign could be given. Let us proclaim Him and live by His word that that sign would be known, that it would be heard, that it would be believed, and that he would continue to build his kingdom.